Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Bounce on its point, wow. The fakes, the gods are with the gods. 2018, it's the year of the vegan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. Uh, what a thrill to be back here among my football-loving sisters. I'm Emma Race. I'm your actual sister, Lucy Race. <laughs> I'm your wannabe sister, Nicole Hayes. I'm Alicia Sometimes, and I'm on the fence. <laughs> so you're my brother. Um, yeah. I'm your brother, Terry Wallace. <laughs> no, I'm Kate Sear and I'm vegetarian. Yeah. And I'm pleased to be here. We Snap. were just talking about how the world is changing so much. And for no one probably more than vegans and vegetarians who've now got more <laughs> options than they've ever had. We do. At, at the football? Do no, you don't feel no. represented at the football, no, do you? No, no, we're not no. represented at all. No. Hot chips and sometimes a spinach and ricotta cheese um, roll. Yeah, but I for vegans. I felt it for vegans, it. nothing. Didn't you feel no. like the apples. AFLW really brought their vegan game? Like, yes. I thought there were a lot of good mm. options there. That was for, my favourite part about yeah. AFLW. You could have a hot dog without the dog. So yeah. a piece of bread. bread. Just bread. Gross. In, That's uh, literally just <laughs> bread. When I went to the baseball in Canada, they had vegetarian and vegan hot dogs. Yes. Ew. It's fantastic. What would they be ma- just made out of paper? Sausages. Sausages are the best. <laughs> made out of things that can't be recycled <laughs> is what I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Anyway, what a massive weekend last weekend was it in the football. The Swans v. The Suns. Who would have thunked it? Oh, Did even. anybody get that tip? No. 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 You're asking us like we tip. I know, I, I know, we don't tip. <laughs> we but don't tip. would anyone, like no. theoretically, do you think anyone would have tipped it? Like no. not even Suns fans would have tipped maybe it? Maybe you would have when you were in that competition for um, Fairfax <laughs> oh, when you, now. you were in the um, Corbin Middlemas, actually, who's an ABC broadcaster in Sydney, he did predict it, but I don't know if he would have actually put pen to paper and but ticked that box. There but pe- There are people like me who will not tip against their side, so maybe there's a Gold Coast fan somewhere out hmm. there who is said, there? of course, yeah, well, I did there? say maybe. Yeah. I started okay. with the maybe. And I think if you're coming really like well down, later the strategy is that you do tip those big upsets. Oh, so I reckon it. someone smart would have. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, let us know um, via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, snail mail, whether you got that tip. And I don't know how we're going to verify it, but Snapchat. go for it. Snapchat us. Um, the other massive one was Geelong after the sign. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, sorry to the Geelongs. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. Sorry that we were all groaning. But they have form. They're oh amazing God. after the siren. Don't turn your back on the ocean after the siren. Do not. Yeah, mm, they no. do. So I saw, <laughs> saw a few stats about this on Twitter. Um, somebody called Kyle Pollard put out some tweets. He noted that there have been 93 games with a kick after the siren and 24 of them involved Geelong, which is 25% of those games, which is quite extraordinary. That's amazing. And of those 24 games, Geelong have won 16 of them, drawn two, 
and lost only six. Melbourne, on the other hand, have been involved in 12 of those 93 games and won only one of them. So really we should have known because it was yeah. um, it was written in the stars that it would happen that way. Is siren pressure a thing that we yes. should be thinking about this year? I think, yeah. well, it's especially is for Jordan Lewis because you might have seen this. This is very, very sad for Jordan Lewis. He has been involved in five games against Geelong, which were decided with a kick after the siren, and he has lost all five of them. So if you're the coach of Melbourne, next time they play Geelong, I think you've got to omit Jordan Lewis. Or at least just put him on the bench bench for the last last five minutes. Yeah, I did wonder how it would play out. Do you know what they should do instead of AFLX? They should just have... The after the Siren <laughs> Cup, right, where they field two full teams and they play for a minute and a half, scores a level. Yes. Would it be got... six, six and six on the... It can oh, be yeah. whatever your favourite score is. You I can like nominate. Uh, 18-metre goal score. I mean Let's the setup. <laughs> oh, yeah, setup. sorry, the yeah. setup. Oh, of course. Mm. Yeah, because six, six and six doesn't add up, I'm sure. <laughs> no, but sure. Um, Nicole... It does. It actually does. Oh, yeah. It does to 18. <laughs> <laughs> okay, stop this craziness. Nicole, you have to revisit something from last week's pod. Yeah, the uh, remember the Almea Culpa corner that we mm. had? I'm, I'm giving it uh, some new life. Um, last week, and I think I blame you, Emma. You weren't here, so you didn't pull me up on it. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks. I was hosting um, and, yeah, thanks. No, no, I you're think too it's, polite. I think it's fair to say I wouldn't anyway. <laughs> I was uh, describing the this current situation around the Brownlow, which actually probably isn't current anymore. I think it's all changed as of last week. But um, that Max Gorn was one of the favourites potentially as a ruckman, um, and that this is new ter- newish territory in recent years. And and I went said we had to go back to Gary Dempsey in 1975 for the last ruckman to win a Brownlow. And then somebody I didn't do you remember who was a tweet? So we got a, a tweet someone who was very gently was probably pulling Emma. us up, probably Emma. <laughs> saying that I was wrong. Now, this tweeter said Jim Steins was in 1991, but if we're going backwards, actually, Scott Wind was 1992 for the Bulldogs. So um, we're both wrong. And as of last weekend, Patrick Dangerfield nominated himself for the going up for the ruck, so he's won it, so he's a ruckman now as well, right? And also also Tom Mitchell's Mm. made a fairly good case for himself, so that might not be a ruck issue anyway. But there you go. I was looking forward to a ruckman winning and then all tall people of the world going out and having a big Celebration <laughs> like giraffes all the world over, just celebrating the ruck win, the it win for a ruck. Makes me feel if uncomfortable. If you've been watching Australian Ninja, they're all ruckmen, aren't they? They're all tall, the ones who are getting through. Okay, it's just I'm, me. I'm all looking right. at you blankly because no. I haven't watched it, Alicia. but I believe you. I'm obsessed with that show. How good is it? <laughs> so good. Can we talk about it later? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, the other, um, there was a one really serious concussion over the weekend. It happened to a bird. It did. Yeah. Um, oh. There is a theme emerging this year, and that theme is birds. So I think you'll remember in round five, a seagull yep. copped it in the wing. On the wing <laughs> at Docklands yeah. in the Hawthorne um, Kangaroos game. Again in round seven, do you remember there was a pigeon that yes. ran in front of Brandon Matera as he was kicking for goal? He sort um, of ran round it. He kind of went straight in front. <laughs> it was like chewy then, on your boot as he went past. Did and he get a 50 for it? Well, no, but Matera missed the goal. The right. so, oh. And then the on the weekend, we saw Scott Pendlebury. I actually think that he was really having a go at our own Felicity race, who has a huge issue with bouncing the ball. Scott mm. Pendlebury said, 
not only can I bounce the ball, I can bounce it on the head of a pigeon <laughs> and still collect it. Well, that's obviously what we were missing on when we went and trained is that we needed a pigeon to make the bounce work. And just to be fair, we're only laughing because the pigeon was fine. The yes, pigeon was yeah. fine. Yeah. Pigeon was yeah. fine. Yes. But it's going to wear a helmet next round. Yeah. <laughs> But it, it got me thinking, you know, maybe there's some meaning because, you know, sometimes like something happens once and you ignore it and then the universe sends the signs. Yes. So yes. the birds just keep coming. So I thought, let's have a look at the symbolism behind these birds. Oh, now, did you know there is symbolism behind seagulls? Seagulls symbolise lunch, lunch. freedom, lunch. freedom and being carefree. No. Be. No. They, no. I would have been in the ocean. They also symbolise... Finding your voice. Ah. Mm. Ah. Who, who decided this is what they symbolise? The internet. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Also> <laughs> Google. Mm. <laughs> Dr. Google said. But also pigeons symbolise not only love, but they symbolise sacrifice. Isn't that doves? doves? No, that's peace. No. Oh. Doves are peace. Pigeons. And can I say on that point, this is a completely random observation, which is <laughs> standard mm. for me. If you don't know G.I. Joe the pigeon, Google... <laughs> Google G.I. Yeah. Joe the Pigeon. You know who I'm talking yes, about. I do. A hero from, totally. from the war. Yes. They, are, they do symbolise <laughs> sacrifice. Yes. So love and sacrifice. The, and the, I would actually argue that love and sacrifice are the twin pillars of football. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> well done. Can I just do a quick whip around? I'm going to put this on a Twitter poll later. If you had to choose between a pigeon and a seagull, who do you hate more? Oh, pigeon. Seagull, because you're at the beach. Seagull. Seagull. You? <gasps> They're pigeon. relentless. Oh, so Dirty pigeon. Only because once I was eating a sandwich in a lunch break and a pigeon actually took it out of my hands. Oh. Scared the hell out of me. Oh. Yeah, egg and lettuce sandwiches. I love them. Um, okay, we will nominate that on Twitter later for a little Twitter poll. <laughs> but I might say, who do you love more between a pigeon and a yes. seagull? Because yes. people don't like the word hate. Mm. Not around animals pigeon anyway. Pigeon poop is dangerous. Is it? Yeah. Don't eat it. Toxic. Like disease. Don't eat it. Something that we put on um, our socials this week was a video that we had made about our football confessions. Now, we put those out with a bit of trepidation because, let's be honest, we're not actors. <laughs> not really qualified <laughs> to be on the screen. Uh, but we do it anyway. And you guys seem to enjoy um, talking about confessions. And we became like the confessional booth uh, for people who have been carrying some really deep secrets and I just wanted to share a couple because they were pure gold. One from Miss Annie Nolan and she's written this on our Instagram so I figure it's public. Mm. She's of course married to Liam Picken who plays um, for the Western Bulldogs and she wrote that she still has her old pyjamas for the team that she supported before she had to switch to support her AFL playing husband's team and she wears them when he's not home. <laughs> I just love that. That's oh, love and one other one that I just loved, which was I often find myself absentmindedly singing the opposing team's song during the game and then I worry intensely about what harm I might be doing to my team's chances. That was from oh. Pencils and Pins. And then mm. people were saying, we got another one saying that they someone who always has the Swans song stuck in their head and can't get rid of it. I do that too. And so, yeah, I share their, their pain. Linda O'Meara... I, think had my favourite one on Facebook <laughs> and she said, when I was a little girl, I thought the players sat down to a roast dinner at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> Mum denies telling me this, but I think that's how she explained why it was such a long break. 
she also <laughs> goes on to say that she has the number 24 plaque from their bay at Waverley Park because she was a huge fan of Chris Langford. And I felt like that was a good time to out one of my other footy confessions Uh-oh. is that I made sure that my youngest child was born on the 24th, not the 23rd of the month, because I preferred Chris Langford over Dermot Brereton. And As how you did you would. do that? We've Crossed her legs. Um, <laughs> he was born he was at born midnight. just after midnight. And so the obstetrician gave me the choice. Oh, do you sure. want 23 or 24? I'll hang out for it's the 24. It. Yeah, Chris Langford's That's sacrifice, totally my it. friends. Mm. That is the pigeon. Ben's They're the one percenters talking. that are the difference. Yeah, I, I was reminded this week that when my kids had their first ever passport photo taken, I made them wear their Hawthorne jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, your first passport's a bit of a thing. Of course. So they look like little tiny – you know how they can't smile in your passport no. photo? They look like little teeny tiny Russian spies in Hawthorne jumpers. <laughs> I'm surprised that they let them so through customs. So it's like they were Hawthorne fans from the 90s. Yes, exactly. <laughs> unsmiling. Actually, oh. Yeah, unsmiling. Or actually given Trump Russia from the from now. Yeah. <laughs> the little Russian spies. Anyone else got any confessions they want to out here? I did like Mark Smith's. Um, he posted online that at Bob Skilton's last game in 1971, he ran onto the Oval and did a lap with the team before the game started, <laughs> along with a few hundred others. But he was in a neck brace at the time, oh. recovering oh. from a broken neck, and oh. his mum had forgiven uh, forbidden him oh, from doing any him. exercise. Good. So he thought he'd got away with it, but then on the front page of the Herald, <laughs> guess it was front and centre, a skinny kid in a neck, neck brace. This, bad. this, of course, reminds me of the time, which we have talked about on this pod before, when Emma went on The Price is Right and won the showcase and Lucy was in the crowd yeah, and had taken the day off work, called in sick and then was um, outed when she was, of course, Did on you TV. Fired? I got docked half a day's pay. And I want a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some white goods. Okay, we're we ready to move on. Let's roll up our sleeves and melee because there's been a lot happening. Um, some really hideous scenes after the Geelong Melbourne match. I want to say that this is an isolated incident, but it's not. Another brawl in the outer case here. Yeah, there have been a few this year. Um, and so it's quite a disturbing trend. And so understandably, there's been a lot of fallout from that match and previous matches, including a lot of debate about what might have caused it and how that kind of violence could be prevented into the future. So I just wanted to reflect a little bit about that. Um, But perhaps unsurprisingly, I think a number of of people have claimed that alcohol was probably the culprit and that measures needed to be taken to address it. And so there have been some suggestions to further limit or manage access to alcohol and alcohol consumption at games, but also to separate rival fans. Um, Although I know the AFL have ruled that out for the time being, but it's still a a live discussion and a live debate. As listeners to the pod will know that the kind of, in my day job, my area of research is drug law. And so I do do a lot of research on alcohol and other drugs and violence, including family violence. And so I have some really serious concerns about this kind of... um, rush to sort of assign blame or, or causal responsibility to alcohol and the claim that alcohol fuels violence, because that's some of the language that's used this week. Um, it's a really, really complex field. So I'm just going to try and do my best to say, uh, to kind of highlight a few problems with the discussion. But essentially, the main point is that alcohol and other drugs have a really complex relationship with violence. So it isn't a simplistic or straightforward causal relationship, even though we're often encouraged to think about it in that way. And, you know, I think 
uh, any day of the week you can open the paper and hear about you know ice fueled rage or alcohol fueled violence and so it's a, a common theme a constant theme but it's much more complex um, and if you think about this in relation to your own lives and your own experiences more broadly I'm sure there will be situations where you have seen or experienced um, or been exposed to violence where alcohol is involved but also just as many or if not more occasions where alcohol has been consumed and there is no violence present. Um, and, you know, I think probably all of us would be able to say that we've gotten drunk at times or had a few beers and never um, hit anybody. So, in uh, you know, importantly, I think society also sends mixed messages when it comes to alcohol and what it apparently does to people. And I've written about this quite a bit, but especially in the context of rape with a colleague of mine called Suzanne Fraser. And one of the things that we have found in our research is that often... On the one hand, we often hear that women need to take care when they drink alcohol because it apparently renders women more passive and more uh, physically vulnerable. But on the other hand, at the same time, we're also often told that alcohol somehow renders men more aggressive, more dangerous and more physically powerful. So in other words, what we're supposed to believe is that the very same substance, alcohol, does two totally different things, that it somehow magically, um, it has magical properties and that it acts differently upon men and upon women. So the truth is, of course, that on the weekend and many incidents throughout the year, um, we've seen at footy, that those who were engaged in violence were men. So this doesn't mean that men are more prone to to perpetrating violence. It also doesn't mean that women aren't themselves sometimes violent. Both of those things are true. But it, what it also means is that alcohol doesn't necessarily cause it. It's just not that simple. Um, it may have played a role in violence, but I think it's wrong to single it out. It's actually wrong to single out any single factor. And I think about race here, which is a, there's a big discussion about race and violence in this state at the moment. That's another example of that kind of tendency. I think what is far more likely in football matches like the one we saw on the weekend is that there's a complex what we call assemblage of factors that play a role. And and really we can only truly work out what those factors are if we're prepared to avoid knee-jerk and simplistic assumptions about violence and look at how an event uh, like the one we saw on the weekend is shaped by multiple factors about spaces, bodies, interacting forces, emotions, human and non-human forces. And I think the, the most troubling aspect of the upshot of that brawl on the weekend is that there will continue to be talk of separating opposition fans or um, controlling alcohol. And all of us will suffer if mm. those kinds of policy uh, strategies are implemented. We will all suffer because of the very poor, poor behaviour of a few. I hate the idea that I might not be able to go to the footy with my friends who go for an opposition team because people have made assumptions about what we might do at the, the ground and that we might drink and then we can't be um, trusted not to engage in violence with one another. That would be wrong and it, it's also completely unjust and unjustified as a policy response. And I think the AFL can and should show leadership in this space by trying to do better to understand the actual dynamics of such violence, by facing uncomfortable truths if necessary, including how 
um, men in particular in certain circumstances with a confluence of factors might be prone or might end up perpetrating violence and then do the hard work of addressing it comprehensively once and for all. So would you say something that could come out of this is if they can work out who the perpetrators um, that were involved in that brawl, if they were to actually sit down with them and really nut it out, ask them what happened, how come it happened, find out what all those factors were and then from there start banking research into why it happened. Yeah, absolutely. It was interesting. I read a lot of tweets on the weekend, including some from people who were at that ground who said, you know, made suggestions about how the configuration of the ground had changed or how people, you know, how many people are allowed into space has changed over time and that that might be a factor. Um, again, not wanting to single out alcohol, but sort of trying to grapple with what, how it might have happened. And I think talking to those people and taking their points of view seriously is the only way we will learn. And it's interesting, Gillan McLaughlin said, you know, there's been a handful of incidents this year. It's a handful too many. I accept that and take responsibility for it, but people need to be held to account. We are spending a lot of money on security companies and police and people who are behaving badly need to be stopped ahead of time if we can and then held to account. We have Seven million people go to our game and we'll have about that this year. Everyone gets on famously. It's part of our game. So it's really interesting that he sort of at the moment shares a similar point of view. But it is how do you get to the bottom of this? How do you sit down with these fans or single them out? And are they banned for life if you have a fight? And I think the challenge too is that complex assemblage of factors isn't the soundbite a lot of politicians are after. Um, And so that doesn't allow for the nuance that this conversation needs. Um, I just wanted, there was a a great podcast that I listened to um, that uh, about this issue. And I think the one of the, this is relevant to toxic masculinity, which we've talked about quite a bit. um, And that this obviously is at the far end of that. This is, uh, this aggression is at the far end of that spectrum of, of, um, where masculinity does become toxic. And it's uh, it's called Invisibilia and the episode was The New Normal and they talked about this oil rig um, that was like a billion-dollar oil rig and they were losing a lot of money because, frankly, people were dying. Um, there Jesus. were high levels of injuries and people literally being killed in front of um, workers, co-workers, and because the environment was so um, deeply masculinised, there were... You couldn't um, ask questions. You couldn't show uncertainty. They couldn't admit that they didn't know how to do something. And even when somebody literally was, you know, destroyed in front of them, there was a 15-minute break and they were back to work. They had, there was no uh, treatment or awareness of psychological impacts of that. There was no, no welfare considerations for the workers. Um, and this, you know, as much money as this, this oil rig made, it was also losing productivity. And eventually um, the, uh, the people who were running it decided to, to have a look at what was happening and why it was so bad in this particular place. Um, in, in, they employed some consul- consultants and this particular woman who was a French woman who um, was, uh, talked about this issue of vulnerability that we, we um, have talked about in the past. And so they spent this intensive period of time with these workers asking them about stories and things that have shaped their lives. Um, and over a period, they broke down and there was a lot of confessional. There were people who'd worked together for 20 years and not known that they'd lost their child or, you know, these really powerful and important moments in their lives they'd not shared with them because you just, that wasn't a safe space for them to do that. And over this week of intensive um, work, they went through the process and then went back to the rig. In the months following, the casualty rate was 
dropped by 84%. Oh, my gosh. Nobody died. For, and I mean, this, this, you know, this is a few years ago that this happened, but in the months there was a complete shift, a complete turnaround. And what it came down to was this idea that, um, you know, what we're looking at here is masculine, this toxic masculinity is actually harmful to men as well. And what, and this, you know, idea of the, the brawls and people getting involved, there are people there who aren't going to be able to go and watch their team, who got hurt or hurt other people and wouldn't ordinarily do that or perhaps if they had that opportunity to rethink their actions. Um, I just think it's a really interesting space and I love the idea of a conversation with the people themselves. It really um, it leads into something I wanted to talk about today, um, which you know really picks up on some of those themes and it's around the idea of how players behave at the end of a game. And I want to start just with a little story about what happened at junior footy for us on the weekend. So my son got injured and it was a terrible collision and he was, um, he had a really painful corky and was really struggling to walk at the end. So usually at the end of the game, everyone goes in and shakes hands and um, three cheers for the umpire and, and off we go. So we hadn't made our way over to that. We were still on our way back from the bench. And as we we're walking slowly across the oval, some of the children from the other team, and this is under 13s, came across to talk to him. And I initially thought, oh, do they go to school together? They don't. Um, Some of the boys just came across and they wanted to say, I'm really sorry you got hurt, mate. Hope you're okay. Good game. See you next time. And as they started, then gradually the rest of the team came and then the coach came. And I've been around football for a very long time at this level and it's the first time I've seen such a genuine display of kindness and empathy and sportsmanship, sporting behaviour. That was on my mind and I tweeted about it and it got a lot of love and I think that that is because this is the sort of thing that people are yearning to see Um, and what I hope is that that sends out ripples. We got home that afternoon and I watched the Hawthorne-Carlton game and um, at the end of that game, I was really struck by the way that the players all interacted. So that was a really tough game for Carlton. And you could see in the interactions of players coming up together, you can you can pick when players know each other and, you know, like some genuine hugs and some real affection and then some people who clearly don't know each other that well and there's just a lovely respectful kind of handshake. So all of this was on my mind. Um, when I started to consume some AFL media post the weekend um, and came across the criticism of Bernie Vince, most notably from Dermot Brereton, who um, in um, in his discussion of Bernie Vince having a chat and then a smile with Patrick Dangerfield at the end of that game. I think um, Brereton really comes across like a relic from another era. He didn't like seeing that chat. He um, he wanted to see, he wanted visual proof that Vince was hurt to the core. That's his quote. Um, he said he could, he really needed to, and this is a quote, show a respect to the game, show a respect to your opponent, get off and socialise somewhere else. I'd actually argue that Vince was doing exactly that. He was showing respect to the game and his opponent by being mature and sporting at the end of the game. What Dermot Brereton's asking him to do is to ignore a former teammate and to keep up that mask of contest, to play a role as opposed to being his authentic self. So Dermot also then went on to um, kind of have a go at the camaraderie displayed at the St Kilda Richmond game, which was Maddie's match. And he conceded that 
the good spirit was um, lovely because of the occasion, but then he seemed to link that that good spirit um, was partly why St Kilda didn't get the win and that fans should be unhappy with that. What I think we see in this criticism, and this is what it, when it comes back to what we were talking about before, is this belief that there's only one acceptable kind of masculinity. Um, and the reality is that there's many. Um, do you remember when we spoke to Ben Brown and he talked about how as players, we're not robots that get wheeled out, out from our <laughs> under um, Dockland Stadium, that, you know, that they're people with feelings and thoughts and opinions. And I, I, for one, am enjoying seeing those kinds of that fully human side to my sports people. And if the Herald Sun comments on that Dermot Brereton article, anything to go by, so is the rest of the football consuming public. Um, that hegemonic masculinity that Dermot Brereton subscribes to is characterised, and this is according to sociologists, by, and this is a quote, a high degree of ruthless competition, an inability to express emotion other than anger, and an unwillingness to admit weakness or dependency. And what I think comes along with that is often a devaluation of women, all feminine attributes in men, um, homophobia and, and other things like that. Um, and I think if, if we expect that from our sports people, the message that we're sending to fans and to the next generation is that it actually sport is life and death. Yeah. It's so interesting that you should bring that up because I think what we see is this real juxtaposition of um, the, the modern day player like your Bernie Vince and certainly like Patrick Dangerfield who have that really open, um, they're willing to speak out, they're willing to show their vulnerability, which we've seen obviously Tom Boyd this week and we'll talk about that later on. People talking about vulnerability in sport is happening more in the AFL with the current day players. Here's a commentary watch for you. I heard um, Spud Frawley refer to himself as one of the current day former players <laughs> the other day and I think one of the, I think the current day former players <laughs> who have a lot of the commentary roles are from that really tough mm. from that era that I feel sits somewhere after Peter Hudson mm. but before, before Bob, Bob Murphy. Murphy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I feel like that's an era of men who were told look hard, be hard, live hard, go hard. And I have been getting obviously really frustrated of late wanting men of that calibre and that era who have um, huge privileged megaphones, I've been wanting them to speak out about violence against women and things like that. And it was, and it was the point was made to me that they don't maybe have the tools to do it. They mm. don't know how to do it because they haven't been, they've been institutionalised in a way that they can't tap in, they don't understand it. And I guess that's why maybe you see the Barry Hall thing kind of happen, you know, that happened a couple of weeks ago. But one of the, um, one of the things that I, I feel a lot of hope when we see the Bernie Vince and Patrick Dangerfield and, and that they then stick up for each other on Twitter and say, this is good and this is something that's real and this is what should be happening. But there are some relics from those days and one of those things is something that happened um, over the school holidays. My kids, um, my two daughters went to a footy clinic and they, there, was, there was 31 kids at this footy clinic, three girls and the rest were boys. And my daughters play a lot of footy. They're around footy all the time. Um, they're quite confident in their footy cred at the moment. Um, and they came home and they'd had an okay time. But my eldest said to me she only got to touch the ball twice 
in the oh, entire day. She'd been there for eight hours. She said no matter how many times they called for the ball, the boys wouldn't kick it to them, that they got basically ignored the whole time. And this is something that has rolled out over the last two years um, since my daughter Sophie has been going to school because she would prefer to play football every lunchtime. And the teachers say that every time they walk past the game, Sophie's been made the umpire again and been pushed out of the game. And in talking about this on social media, we got so many comments from people who listen to this podcast who's, and I'm not just saying daughters, I'm saying sons who don't ha- don't feel confident potentially, mm. sons who don't fit that same mould, sons who um, sons and daughters who've not played before. The school environment is not conducive to allowing them to have a go. It feels like the people who own the grass own the grass and they don't share the grass. And, and it's a real issue. And some of the comments that we had coming back in were that a lot of kids are being pushed out of the game and not wanting to go to football because they're not enjoying that really macho um, kind of expectation that this is what they're owed. There's a, there's a real power in the, in the group of people who are owning the grass or the space or the game or the ball or whatever it is. And um, we've been, I've been kind of talking about it on social media with a couple of people, including teachers um, and other parents saying, you know, how do you, how do we break this down? And I think it's something that we really need to look at because it's a, it's a social, it's part of our, our, of our social lives. And it's, it's certainly something that can form people's confidence and um, ability to connect with other children in the playground and certainly we know that carries on into adult life and so a lot of them are saying it needs to be child-led. It has to be because, sorry, the teachers uh, I know because I certainly have been around uh, boys that are getting told that they shouldn't be on um, the ground and the teachers uh, have talked about it, they've tried to make a conducive um, playing field literally and it's it's the one or two or maybe maybe three boys that just say, nah, this is mine, get out, I'm far more talented, I'm better, get out, this is my rules. And this happens day after day. There's a uh, certain irony, don't you think, that the school footy oval is not conducive to learning? Like, I mean, that they're actually not a safe space for kids to be learning, which is what, you know, kids who aren't confident or alert, um, new to the game that's what they're asking for, isn't it? It's a really funny thing, though, when it comes down to football and it's a football situation because kids are usually pretty good at saying, yeah, join in. Like if you're at the park, for example, and your kids might play with kids that they don't know or, yeah, you can have a go of this or they're good at sharing. They know that they're meant to share. But when it comes to sport, when it comes to football, particularly I notice, it feels like there's a real void there. Yeah, and shout out to a listener of ours um, by the name of Matt who also sent us a story about his family and raised some similar concerns about the way that um, certain kinds of kids might be subject to criticism or uh, abuse or harassment or or teasing by by other kids. And his question to us, which, which I don't have an answer for, is, you know, how do we deal with this as a community? How do clubs often staffed by volunteer parents who don't have training or don't know how to negotiate difficult personalities and so on address those issues. And I just wanted to mention very briefly a little story that um, came to came to my attention recently where um, someone I know had um, had a son who was playing football in a local competition and the that match degenerated into violence. Um, 
and she raised some of her concerns with the president of the club of the uh, uh, the president of the club of the team who had been the kind of main perpetrators of that violence and she had said look we need to teach our young boys better behavior this is not kind of appropriate behavior and from a club perspective you should be considering ways to model better behavior for young boys and the club president called her and um the first thing he said to her was, look, I, thanks for your feedback and thanks for the email, but it would be helpful in future, just as an FYI, if you were less emotional when you raise these kinds of concerns. And so it makes me think, how do we get anywhere as a community if, wow. if particularly women, when women speak up, and I spoke about this a few weeks ago in relation to Barry Hall, are subject to criticism, told that they're being too hysterical or too mm. emotional as a kind of silencing strategy. How do we actually have this conversation as a community? I think we do need to talk about that a lot more. I, was, I think it's it's actually what we're talking about. I think that the more that we can talk about the fact that um, we're all able to be in many different forms, it's that's the first step, that when we have very, very rigid gender stereotypes of um, how we expect men and women and, and for people to be, I think that that doesn't leave a lot of space and I think, I think that's the starting point. Yep. I just want to say, having great experience now with soccer, um, it's been really fascinating because, Lucy, to your point about your son, which is so heartwarming, the under-8s at my son's team just constantly hug the opposition and they they shake hands. And um, occasionally there's ones who the opposition have gone loser, 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 because it's been 16 to 0 or something. It's very rare. But those coaches have been amazing Mm. at saying, no, this is not acceptable, and bringing the boys over and saying, these are your opposition, these are the people who one day will beat you. And, And it's it's been amazing mm. to see and they take every complaint seriously. This uh, particular soccer association has been incredible. And I wanted to say to you, uh, Emma, that I was thinking about old school football players and even in the day when they'd have brawls and, and you're right, it's a different breed of footballer back then. But even when I was little on the wing, players would shake hands and have a really good laugh straight after the game. I don't think it's a strange thing. I don't think it's been missing from the game forever. It's it's hopefully it extends to further than that and it extends in the game. But I've always admired the way you can play someone, you can beat them by 100 points and then have a laugh and put your arms around them. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that back in those mm. days. I really don't. I remember yeah. there being animosity and mm. you know law cases against people yeah, who got sure. da- you know decked yeah. and stuff like that but i think that that's that's the human and that's yeah. what we want to see more of and if it existed then then great that it did and that hopefully it will continue to yeah. be celebrated but i do feel like the mainstream media really comment on it and yeah. then make it into something negative that, yeah. that it doesn't need to be like i think it's, it should be a huge celebration and i think part of it all comes back to you know sharing the space and acknowledging that we love the game um, and this sharing the grass situation is a lot like sharing the outer. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that the men and all the people that were involved in that brawl are basically saying, this is our place mm-hmm. to do what we want to do. There was probably children of all ages right around yeah. them there. And that is so unacceptable. So and it's true. not their space. And I, I, I like, you know, I take issue with that question of emotion how much more emotional can you be than than fighting somebody like that is your that is yeah. an extremely emotional yes. response Pity but me. i also think with with you talked about these um sort of older players more established players who perhaps don't have the tools 
that's what learning's about. And imagine if we could create an environment where these men wanted to be better, wanted to be open, could see that they have a role to play here and could say, I don't know how to do this. Tell us, help us work our way through this. Can you can you just imagine where we might do be? Do you mean they'd have to show vulnerability and admit yeah. they don't know everything about I, the game? That is a big statement, but mm. yes, that's what I'm saying. Interestingly, this week, another really interesting um, part of the vulnerability story was Kobe Stevens, Nick. Yeah. So it's been a big week for concussion, actually. Um, I There was a piece I, I did for The Guardian. Um, that in, was great, by the way. Congratulations. Yes, Thank you. Thanks speaking a real honest truth. And it, it really connected with a lot of players. Yeah, it did. It, it really did. And and actually, it was prompted by really our pod the la- last week when you were talking about Liam Pickens' um, Instagram post, which really um, was very open and vulnerable and really powerful stuff. And I encourage everyone to have a look at it. Lucy um, read some of it uh, from last week. But so I, I was looking at the, I was very concerned to see Robbie Gray playing a week after he'd literally been knocked out and stretched mm-hmm. off the ground. And, you know, it's a really tricky thing because obviously he was assessed by professionals and there are protocols. And I have absolutely no doubt that they adhered to all of those protocols and they did all of the right things according to how it's written. Um, but the more that we read about concussion and the more, you know, um, the, the more we realise we don't know and we don't understand. And I just, we've had 50 to this point, we've had 50 players this year, this season alone, who have either been diagnosed with concussion or concussion-like symptoms. And um, Nick, can I ask you, is that AFL-M alone? or is that... AFL, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. It's right. AFL-M alone. Right. So that's for 18 rounds of AFL-M wow. uh, up to this past weekend. That in, um, And... You know, so my argument was given our limited understanding and in terms of long-term cognitive and neurological, but also, you know, from what Liam Picken was saying and, and what the research is demonstrating, the psychological impacts, which you cannot measure, um, that we should be extra cautious, extra conservative in allowing players to return to the field and that perhaps those protocols need to be revised um, and, you know, what you've got to weigh up the risk, the risk of, okay, you miss another week, and maybe a team loses versus potential, you know, long-term brain injury. So, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that there's there does seem to be more conversation about it. But in light of that, the same day that that article dropped, um, Kobe Stevens, Saints midfielder, announced that he was retiring from AFL, and this was due to an ongoing battle he had with post-concussion syndrome. Um, in re- round one, he received a hard knock from Mitch Robinson. Um, at the time, suffered blurred vision and actually admits to covering up his symptoms and not admitting to what was happening. And he lined up again round two. So admitting to covering up symptoms, does that make alarm bells go off in your head that whatever the systems are in place that allow Robbie Gray to play? Yep. And not enough. It's not enough because it is count, it's relying to some degree on the player's honesty. Of the player. honesty. Yeah. I mean, he actually said, looking back at it now and everything that it's robbed me of the last three or four months, you know, he realises he should have been taking care of his health first, but he didn't want to show any signs of weakness, um, that it's a brutal game and, and weakness is not something that's supported or encouraged. Um, and I and I just think this is coming back to this same subject again of this, this toxic masculinity and, and the potential for that to to actually be harming the the men themselves. But, you know, I think he made an incredibly brave decision. This is his eighth concussion and he had delayed, wow. you know, oh, no. if you just think about it, we've looked at some things we can do to, to reduce and there's lots of talk about tougher, tougher penalties regarding head 
high hits. Um, but when you look at the fact that Jeremy Cameron was rubbed out for five weeks, only a couple of, uh, for, you know, he did a really terrible tackle on Harris Andrews that resulted in concussion and a brain bleed. Nyhouse, not even a couple of weeks later, was rubbed out for three weeks on his um, dangerous tackle on Robbie Gray. So, the, so one, the, the penalties are clearly not tough enough to sufficiently deter um, players from doing these dangerous tackles or head-high contact. But then what if someone like Liam Picken, who was concussed as a consequence of friendly fire, you know, who do you penalise then? Yeah. So there's obviously a really big conversation. That, I mean, absolutely, I, I feel like the game can be a safe space, but we have to be talking about this and players have to be feel free and safe to say, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just best wishes to, to um, Kobe Stevens and, and to all those mm-hmm. other players. There's a bunch of them now um, suffering concussion and post-concussion syndrome. And, and in coming out and telling his story, he is really, you know, being very much a part of moving this forward um, because I think, you know, as one, of, as one of the things we talked about last week was the uncertainty around it. And I know, like, I've, you know, when I was a trainer with, with junior football and went to seminars, doctors would say, there's no way that if a child is concussed one week that they should be back the next week. Mm. Like it's just blanket that they should be out for a few weeks and I can't see why that would be different for adults. Well, and it's a, and you think about the, the especially a young man's brain, the, there is a lot of evidence it's still growing even into their 20s. Mm. So mm. The, especially those younger players, I think maybe we need to be as conservative as we are with young people, adolescents and, and, and junior players. I know that the AFLW players have um, a tackling coach that comes out to see them that's not team-specific that comes out to talk to people about the safety of tackling. And I don't know if the men's game does it as well, but the AFLW is having another look at a couple of different rule changes as well, um, heading into Season 3, Alicia. Yeah, so the AFLW have a new rules committee to help shape the future. Sarah Black wrote in AFL.com that the AFL will work with the AFL Women's Competition Committee when deliberating new rules and the future of the competition. Nicole Livingston said, we'll look at what they're doing with the AFL. We will meet with the same people. Then we will figure out what will be compatible. Uh, It looks like an interesting committee. They've got players represented by uh, such as Lauren Arnell, Cara Dinellen, CEOs Mark Evans from the Gold Coast, Kane Little from Carlton, um, managers like Debbie Lee from the Western Bulldogs, Laura Kane from North Melbourne, uh, Peter Sell from St Kilda. And Livingston said the committee has a versatile scope. So it'll be interesting to see what the AFLW committee uh, comes up with, considering the AFL have a lot of um, rule changes that they might consider. <laughs> considering them right now yeah, as we speak. Right. Yeah. We can't talk about it because it's happening <laughs> as we speak. So we'll be tweeting about that, no no doubt. But Sarah Black also wrote another interesting article in AFL.com that's titled AFLW Turns Conventional Wisdom on Its Head. She says that... Um Conventional footy wisdom suggests a higher number of marks inside 50 leads to a higher winning margin, but that's not the case in women's football. A study conducted by Georgia Black from the Australian Catholic University looked at the first season of the AFLW and identified which statistical categories were uh, most correlated to winning. This was published in the Science and Medicine in Football uh, study, and you'd be surprised to learn that higher winning margins were associated with fewer marks inside 50. So you have the speedy uh, 
Kate McCarthy or Jess mm. Wushner. You had speedy bulldog Brooke Lachlan. Teams who could score running goals Alicia more Newman. often. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh, my God. Amazing. <laughs> they most often did the damage. Um, so they're looking for alternative inside 50 entry options. We learned that teams couldn't just bomb it long to a contest in the attacking arc and expect to score. But also the study found a strong correlation between contested marks and ladder position. Taking contested marks mean you control possession and pace of the game. It kind of sounds, you know, like an obvious thing. Yeah, so it's interesting that the stats to look at for AFLW is the number of kicks, conversion to inside 50 entries, contested marks, uncontested possessions. By comparison, less relevant statistics were the number of handballs, contested possessions and clangers. Clangers. Ah, That's the official term. It's interesting ahead of draft time in October to have that research because that can really inform the way that you might select people. Mm. Exactly. And it says this, and it says more than 72 uncontested possessions means you win in OFLW. Under that, Mm. you lose. Yeah, it's interesting. Much earlier this year, I remember we had Shiloh Curtis on the show and she said that she had an instinctive feeling that um, inside 50s weren't a useful stat no. and that she thought maybe inside 30s were. I don't know if you remember yeah. her making that point. So that research obviously um, confirms her her intuition. But, yeah, to me the most interesting point is whether the clubs will take this information yeah. and how it shapes who they're looking for and what kind of footballers they, they're going to pick. Well, overhead marks are more difficult for women's strength. It's not a. It's not one of their strong suits of having upper body strength. So yeah. uh, and. And then the other thing is if you're looking at zoning, which they do kind of play that zoned game, then there's very rarely people out on their own. People are usually yep. manned up, so there's rarely someone. And then the other thing is if you're banging it into the 50 or the 30, um, if it gets rushed, you know that if it comes to ground and it gets rushed over, yep. then that they have to do the playing on, they do the lasso. Yep. So it actually <laughs> is it's more beneficial for you as a defender just to bang it yep. out and try and get it to the ground. So, the, you you know, the rules are actually kind of creating those mm. stats themselves anyway. Mm. So, you know, I think that if they're going to do the lasso rule this year, I think they should look at it as not being as part of the inside 30 50, or 50. Yeah, yeah. It should actually just be in the centre yeah. because uh, it, it doesn't, it's not conducive mm. to seeing those kinds of long leads or, you know, mark, marking contests. And also too, can I just put in a plug to the AFLW committee that if they are going to stick with the lasso rule, when they use it, can they play a little bit of... Music alongside like the cowboy. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> <laughs> so Nicole and I spoke to Emily Collier, author and playwright, about her play called Contest that features a bit of netball and a whole lot of courage. Thanks so much for coming in and speaking with us, Emily. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, Contest has got netball as its Mm. backdrop. Five fierce women uh, coming together. Maybe tell us a bit about how the play came about and who these women are. Yeah, sure. So the play's been in development for quite a while now and I originally started with the idea that I... A, wanted to make a work that was um, had women on stage being highly physical but not in a sexualised way at all. So that was one goal. And the other one was to um, explore aspects around a kind of femaleness or a kind of femininity and a kind of group dynamic that sometimes occurs between women. It seemed like a good way to bring those things together. They're ordinary women, I guess, which is what's important to me. So when I was first thinking about the piece, 
they were going to be young players and it was going to be an elite team and it was sort of this end of the world futuristic scenario. And as we started developing the work, it started to feel very important to me that they were kind of more people like me and people I know and older bodies and different kinds of bodies because I thought we quite often see young, trim, beautiful, fit, fast bodies on stage and it felt like an interesting experiment to sort of push push outside of that zone a little bit. You said it's a competitive and feminist space about this play. Yeah. Why is that? When I was researching netball, I was really interested that it originally was adapted from basketball to be a more appropriate game for women to play. So back in the 19th century, there was this sort of idea, well, we need to let women get out and about a little bit and just sort of run around but not exert themselves too much because that can damage their brains. This was literally the research that I was doing. So they, they developed this game, which so you, know, you can't run with the ball, you can't touch each other, you have to stay in your own zone. So I felt that it was so interesting that what began as actually a way of kind of controlling women is now this sort of space that is so feminist and so fierce and so dominated by incredible, strong, wonderful women. So that tension to me is really interesting, really about how we all live our lives, is that we're, we're living with the kind of echoes of the patriarchy and some some... Some things aren't echoing, they're still ringing loud and clear, while we're sort of forging ahead into new ways of being and new ways of being as women, as people, in groups and for each other. So it felt like all of that metaphoric territory existed within netball. Is that, but you said you you learnt, uncovered all of that as you were researching. Yeah. So why did you start with netball in particular? Do you have a relationship with netball? Is it a game you played? I played it as a kid and I really liked it, but I wasn't any good. But I just enjoyed being part of a team and, you know, watching the girls who were really good. And that was sort of it. And then actually the, the emotional impetus came for me when I met my current partner, who has a daughter who's now a grown-up. But when she was a child, she played netball and I started going along to her netball games. And it was this really strange feeling of stepping into that sort of suburban amateur sports space again but as an adult and all those same feelings as when you're a kid about will I belong will these other mostly women accept me will I be part of the group or not so as a step parent coming into a zone with lots of mothers and parents was quite confronting and it just felt felt to me like oh this yeah this space is very rich for 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 exploration so that that happened along the same time as the desire to make a work about physical physicality in women so it all seemed to gel together a lot of women post their work day love to get on the netball court just to, you know, play sport. It's a great team building kind of exercise. It's a great place to, to be social as well. Yeah. You said that this was a netball dreamscape, that sport does sport, but plays do things differently. How do you explore uh, humanity through sport? Yeah, so we again, I, I thought a lot about how, I mean, can you stage a game in theatre? And it's very hard because what's brilliant about a game is you don't know the outcome, whereas in theatre you really have to know the outcome <laughs> night after night, otherwise it's very hard to plot and design and give the actors their lines. So that was a really, it took a lot of kind of digging around for myself and my dramaturg I was working with at the time, Mark Pritchard, to think, well, what, what are the essences of sport that can be captured and adapted for theatre? And I think it was things to do with with excitement, with drama, with competitiveness and with escape, with that thing of, of going to a place that is outside your ordinary everyday life where you can live the worst parts of yourself and also the best parts of yourself. So we have a lot of fun in the second part of the play where it kind of takes off into slightly more poetic and metaphoric territory with what these women are discovering about themselves. Yeah, it starts off in, in a not exactly a negative, but they're confronting aspects of themselves that might be difficult. And then it's it's about pushing through that. So I felt that the physicality of sport was a great way to sort of look at holding things and tension and release and, and using that as a journey for, for these women as they play with each other. They do that with their relationships with each other in the game and with themselves. 
Did you? So, are they actually playing bits of? Like, do we see some of netball happening on the stage? Because if the, if you do, mm. I imagine the choreography would be incredible. But also, the actors themselves have to be reasonably capable. Yeah. So, well, the uh, the play is actually in four sections, which is um warm up, drills, game, and cool down. So we <laughs> thought that was a kind of nice way to divide it up. So warm up is what it is. Drills is a lot of kind of running and fitness drills, and a couple of ball drills. Yeah, the game was really difficult to decide what to do because we just thought, again, in the end, if there's too much reliance on a ball, a ball in theatre is just so unpredictable. (laughs) And, I mean, our actors are absolutely wonderful, but none of them were netball players. (laughs) So it just felt like it wasn't the right decision to make them literally play a game. So we've done an adapted version of a game which has intense physicality, slow motion moments, incredibly well supported by sound, light and design. So hopefully there's the drama of a game, but without that pressure for our five incredible women to literally play netball. (laughs) I love that you're... That the play in four parts is like a metaphor for life. That's that's kind of hilarious. So tell us about these five uh, women. There, you've got a, quite a diverse cast. Yeah. What are some of the characters like? Um, yeah. So I guess in terms of the the cast, as as the, the actual actors themselves, they're all slightly you know, middle aged and older women. So they're from thirty five up to fifty nine. Uh, we've got three mums, uh, three mothers as the actors. Uh, one is breastfeeding, so she's been pumping during rehearsals, and one of our actors is a wheelchair user, and so that's been really challenging and really wonderful to incorporate that um, disability and non disability into the same cast. In terms of the characters. Uh, we had to make some tough decisions around which positions to include because, you know, Nepal has seven players on a team. Mm-hmm. This is independent theatre, so we could afford five. So, and it was really fun gradually building the characters around their positions. And also most of the actors have been involved all the way through the development. So I was able to develop it around their position and their skills as an actor. So we have a wing attack who's um, who's the only character with a name. She's Cassandra and she's kind of the catalyst for a lot of the changes that happen throughout the play. That was uh, my position. Was it wing attack? Yeah, wing fast. Attack. Sometimes a centre, but a lot of the yeah. time the wing attack. So, so often people were centres yeah. and wing attacks. Yeah. I was always either wing defence or goalkeeper. So we have a goalkeeper, oh no, so we have a goal attack who's, you know, fierce and big type A personality. We have a goal shooter uh, who's sort of glamorous and uh, quite concerned with how she looks and those sorts of things. <laughs> we have a centre who's fast, friendly, furious, talks nine to the dozen, uh, ten to the dozen. I don't know that saying. A lot. Obviously. <laughs> um, and we have a goal defence who is, you know, really kind of um, uh, really strong, quite dark personality uh, in that sort of defender mode. Yeah. Sports are always underfunded. The arts, oh my gosh, they are <laughs> underfunded. Has this been a bit of a struggle to get this work on? Yes, it really has. Yeah. Uh, Yes, so it's uh, it's been through many different developments. It started about three years ago as an idea that I was talking about with Malthouse Theatre and, and they've supported it wonderfully. So I originally developed it a little bit through their Beast and Riders program and then they commissioned the work, which was wonderful, so I got to work on it. Fortunately, then they decided not to program it. So, And that's that's the thing with theatre. You end up then in this um, situation with uh, a script that's pretty much ready to go, but then you need to produce it yourself. So I, about 12 months ago now, I just thought, okay, this one's going to be independently produced. So that then becomes a process of gathering the team, raising the money, finding a, a, part, a venue to partner with. And I'm very lucky to have a wonderful relationship with Darabin Art Speakeasy, who are fabulous. So I pitched the idea to them and they were interested and then, yeah, it was all about fundraising and, you know, I got we got about half of the full budget that we would have liked to get to really do it properly and even that was a very lean budget. Yeah, so, you know, everybody's working on a tight shoestring. 
That's amazing. And, yeah, we, we are big supporters of the arts, Alicia and I. Yes. And take the whole outer sanctum. And mm. uh, that intersection between sport and the arts is such an interesting space for all of us. Mm. So good luck with it. You must be really excited. It's on now. Yeah. At, at Northcote Town Hall. Northcote yeah. Town Hall. And runs until? The 4th of August. It's on until the 4th of August. Look at Darabin Arts and we will put that, that information up on the website. It is called Contest. We have been speaking with Emily Collier, a wonderful cast, a wonderful journey, and mm. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be an incredible thing. Will you tour for our listeners all across Australia? I was so loved to, and part of the part of the reason that we made the play was I thought it, it has broad appeal, you know, like a lot of people play netball, and I love that idea of bringing sport and theatre together to sort of wonderful amateur and professional spaces where people get so much pleasure out of. So I'd love to, but that's a whole other story yeah, well, around Good luck. And, we just, yeah, everyone shows true. up, then yeah. there'll be the support and yeah. that. There's your, and then it'll happen. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. It has been such a pleasure to be back in the Stu Stu studio with you, my sisters. Um, any final business, Kate? Yeah, just a couple of shout-outs, actually. We mentioned very briefly earlier on that Tom Boyd had participated in an interview in the last couple of days uh, where he has spoken quite candidly about his mental health challenges, and that's part of a longer series that's being released directed towards men and getting them to talk about mental health and try and break down the stigma. So... Um, Kudos to Tom Boyd on speaking out. I think it was very, very powerful and important. Uh, and also this weekend, congratulations to Jordan Lewis, who is playing his 300th game. Um, luckily, he's not playing against Geelong again, given that he <laughs> has a tendency to, to lose to them. But um, what a, an incredible career he's had, four premierships, and um, good luck to him. Oh, if you're in South Australia or actually anywhere in Australia and you want to play for the Adelaide Crows, there's a testing day. A lot of the clubs have Nicole. already done their testing days, <laughs> but they're looking for two positions. Oh, Nicole, oh, it's yes. me. They want us. And two. me. And me. We're in <laughs> positions uh, for their right. 2019 uh, list. So if you're at uh, the Adelaide you're interested in the Adelaide Football Club, um, we'll put the dates on the website. It's coming up in the next few weeks. So I just wanted to sh- put it out there if you want to play for Adelaide. Imagine if you hear that here first and then you go to the test and you end up playing for the Adelaide Crows. Amazing. I hope they thank us if they do. Amazing. Yeah, Nicole? Um, Aaliyah, Aaliyah, superstar from last week but also superstar generally, has re-signed at Sydney, which is a big coup for Sydney and just an awesome thing to, to see. Um, I love seeing players stay a long time at their clubs. It just makes mm. me feel happy. So well done. A little bit of Tiger news. Um, congratulations to Dimmer, who we love. Um, Mr. Dimmer <laughs> is coaching his 200th game this weekend, and he is only the third man to do that for Richmond. Um, he will join Tommy Hafey and Jack Dyer as people who have coached that club for over 200 games. You know, he'll probably get a statue out the front of Tigerland. <laughs> Imagine if he has the on the statue as the I Love, I love Mrs. Dimmer t-shirt. I love it. And also, t- the Tiger Army, this is scary news. They have hit 100,000. And according to a friend of ours, um, Tim, on Twitter, um, that Tiger Army is officially larger than some actual armies, <laughs> including <laughs> those of, and this is not an exhaustive list, Sweden, Australia, Switzerland, Belgium, Canada, Portugal, South Africa and Norway. And the Kiss Army too, apparently. Kiss Army. <laughs> 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 oh, the 
kiss army. I love it. I was, an, I was part of the kiss army. So was I. I was. I had a Paul Stanley me. birthday cake. I saw them live in 1980. 1977. Man. Oh, man. Okay. Oh, we're old. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to um, regale you with my stories of being backstage um, with Gene Simmons later on. Oh, my God. Off oh. air because it doesn't okay. bear repeating oh, the microphone in front. Story Similar story. too. Okay. We'll be doing bow, a special bow, podcast bow, bow, that you'll have to pay for to get access bow, to bow, what bow, would be bow, bow. very interesting. Uh, so that's us uh, wrapped and over and out. Over and out. Something. Uh, what do we something, say? There's something we say at the end. It starts with G and <laughs> F. <laughs> All right, that's us out of here. Have a great weekend. Go and go 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 Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.